And after a couple of rehearsals, the drummer announced that he got us a gig at the Portsmouth Irish Club. <laughs> what? <laughs> and I said, the Irish Club? We're a bloody jazz trio. What are we doing at the Irish Club? He said, no, no, don't, don't worry. It's not, they use it for all kinds of music and all kinds of people go there. It'll be fine. Well, we showed up at the Irish Club and the drummer was quite right about one thing. The audience was not Irish at all. It consisted of about a hundred skinheads. <laughs> now, skinheads in Portsmouth at this time were not really known for their appreciation of acoustic jazz trios. <laughs> for a while, they, they just stood and kind of stared blankly at us and then they started to throw things. Nothing too dangerous. The, the purpose was really humiliation, so they threw pennies, you know, <laughs> peanuts, uh, fag ends, or cigarette butts to, to your Americans, <laughs> fag packets, more pennies, you know. Welcome to episode 37 of CFX, the Cultural Future Exchange. This one is titled uh, Joe Jackson Album War, Look Sharp versus uh, Day and Night. Night and Day. Night and Day. <laughs> <laughs> night and day. Uh, uh, yes, it's Night and Day. It's not Day and Night. Uh, so anyway, welcome. Uh, CFX is the place, of course, where, you know, we uh, examine the different... Uh, Elements of cultural ephemera, music, movies, TV, books, stage screen, all that dive into the context of the time that came out, what's happened since, and our take in a future valuation, a stock market kind of way, should you go long, short, stay neutral, that kind of thing. And this is yet another one of our album wars uh, where 
you know, the conceit here, of course, is that we love the artist and we probably pretty much both love the albums and we're just going to take sides on what one we think is a better album, similar to what we did uh, for recently with the ACDC uh, Back in Black and Highway to Hell sort of thing. And this is just another example. This is a uh, this is Joe Jackson here, uh, a denizen, most famously probably of the early 80s, but has had a very long career and still around and performing and and doing good things. So, Slip, do you want to say anything about Mr. Jackson? Yeah, I mean, I'll go a lot into my personal history because he was really huge for me growing up for some reason. It's really interesting to me why, you know, but uh, and he's one of those artists where I kind of forgot about him for years and then recently got back into him. And it's funny, too, because these albums, it's different. I think the ACDC one is like that was like their peak. These are kind of both. I, I think these are kind of both his peak. These are the two mo- albums that people would most likely know. And uh, to be honest, I'm still not 100 percent on the side of one being better than the other, really. But it's like I just wanted to talk about Night and Day. And Jeff, I think, wanted to talk more about Look Sharp. And I wanted to talk about Look Sharp, too. So, but but the rest of his career, as much as I admire pieces of it, it's pretty minor compared to these two. So it really just made sense. You know, he would probably be someone we would talk about one album with, as opposed to like a band talking about their whole career. But I just couldn't give up night and day. I just love it. And so I wanted to talk about it. And of course, it has his, it's his biggest album. But then Look Sharp is also his, probably his second biggest and had as much of an impact so right. it was kind of hard i think this is to me less of a war than of course acdc too we both love those albums so it's you know but it's just an interesting way to talk about it we're not going to make every one of our music podcasts an album more but it's just something we're going to pull out and do when it seems to make sense and i think it makes sense here really yeah and, and i also love night and day too so it, yeah as you said it's not like you know you don't like look sharp and I don't like night and day. We both like both. So this is just, as you say, a conceit for us to talk about both and, and, and pose it. And as you'll hear, we kind of will vacillate back and forth between, you know, Oh, I really like that one or really like this one and, and, and things like that. Um, and I'll, maybe I'll just go into my personal history here uh, first. Uh, Cause it's a little bit shorter than, than yours, but um when this album came out in, you know, late 79 and, and, uh, Night and Day came out, uh, you know, obviously right after that, uh, a year or two after that. Um, I was not into New Wave really at all. I mean, this, you know, you've heard me talk about this era a lot. And, you know, we on the ACDC episode, we talked about this era a lot and because it's the same era, basically. And um, I was not, I was into ACDC, I was into all that stuff and not really into New, new Wave at all. I heard it. It just wasn't my thing. I probably even had a couple new wave albums that I inherited, didn't really listen to them, and really was not as into this era of new wave until much later. I mean, I kind of, we talked about in the Berlin Missing Persons, I did like music of that sort of genre on occasion, um, but it was a bit later. I mean, the Missing Persons stuff and, and Berlin was, a, you know, a couple of years after this. But I, this was not really my kind of music. And I, and it wasn't until years later that I got into it. But when I did, I really did. And this I didn't get into it probably till my mid to late 20s, honestly. But when I did, it was I had an appreciation for it and a growing one and still growing to this day. And certainly that's the case for Joe Jackson, but also maybe even more importantly to me, Talking Heads, which, you know, I, I liked a couple of their songs at the time, you know, Burning Down the House and all that stuff. That was fine. It was good. 
But it wasn't until I would say even the last 10 years that I really just was like, wow, they were just a fantastic band. And and same with Joe Jackson. It's like I I've always liked parts of his, you know, you know, ooh, but it wasn't really until I'd say the last 10 years or so that I was like, man, he's really, really good and and really maybe fully appreciating um how great some of his early stuff uh was. And some of the contemporaries here uh who often are lumped in at this time are, you know, obviously people like Elvis Costello and then Graham Parker to a degree. And I can, I can, of this kind of trifecta of people, I can say that I like Joe Jackson the best by far. Um, I know you're a big Elvis Costello fan and, and oh, I, yeah. I really uh, respect him a lot. I, I really think he's very, very talented, very innovative, all that, give him full props and all that. But to me, his music is just, not it never really grabbed me the way others have and and again there's a handful of songs of his that I think are just all-time great stuff things but I just never really listened to him that much I mean the proof yeah. in the pudding I just never go back and listen to um you, you know things I've heard all of his albums even more recent ones that are maybe not as good I mean not maybe they aren't as good as yeah. like armed forces and things like that but I was just never really the biggest Elvis Costello guy. And maybe ironically, like I'm 10 times more of a fan of his wife, uh, Diana Krall, than I am of him. So, uh, I mean, Dude, I that totally awesome. makes sense, though. That totally makes sense why you would like Joe Jackson and Diana Krall. It's that jazz thing. Yeah. Man. And, and it's, we'll get yeah. to a certain core influence that, you know, we'll talk about. I'll talk about it a little bit in my personal history, but we'll talk about the zeitgeist that I think is one of the reasons why Joe Jackson, there's no competition between the two for you. Yeah. Because uh, there is that influence that, you know, that we you know, will talk about. Yeah, and, and piano <laughs> jazz stuff is like, you know, a bit, yeah. I, I love piano jazz, but I, I think Diana Krall has like one of the greatest voices ever, and she she's great. So, um, I mean, a lot of people don't like that kind of, you know, slow jazz, you know, they like people say like, oh, Nora Jones type stuff. I, I love Nora Jones too, by the way, and, and I'll defend her all over the place. I think she's awesome too. So um, anyway, uh, Graham Parker's another guy who's mentioned here, and I yeah, local girls and squeezing out sparks and all that. Yeah, fine. I've heard that album. I've tried to listen to that album like maybe fifty times in my life because it's supposed to be this great album. Just doesn't do anything for me. I'm just never a fan of his. I never got it. I I mean, I just never got him. It's just not my thing. So anyway, lastly, what I will say, um, although I do like local girls, that song is a really great song. Um, what I will say about Joe Jackson is maybe a little bit ironic is my favorite Joe Jackson song isn't on either of these two albums. It's I'm the man, which uh, is really an incredible song. And it's on the album. I'm the man, which has a great album cover too. Uh, I think it's his third album, right? After, second album, second, it's a second album, album. And it's almost a carbon copy of the first. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of like, I mean, I talk about this later, but I might as well talk about it now. It's kind of like the cars and candy O mm -hmm. where, where the cars kind of did a similar album. And I think it's uh, this is probably a future album where I think it's close, if not just as good as the first album, even though the first album is probably empirically the better of the two. I think look sharp is a better album than I'm the man, but only barely. Yeah. Like I'm the man is really good. It's yeah. got every song is good and it's got, but it's like, you know, the song Friday, for instance, is almost like got the time redone. Yeah. You know, there, there, there's a lot, but I'm the man is great song. And I love that second album. I listen to it almost as much as look sharp, you yeah. know, it's a close one for me. It's really good. 
I I just love the lyrics of I'm the man too. It's just so funny and 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 maybe prescient in a lot of ways. So anyway, that's my personal history. I've just rediscovered Joe Jackson, you know, again and again over the years. And just, I would say what's interesting, most interesting about it to me, at least, is that it's sort of a slow build over time. It wasn't like I was in love with it. Then I wasn't, I didn't listen to it. It's like, it took me a while to really appreciate it. But the more I listen to it, the more I appreciate it. So it's a, has a kind of an upward trajectory and maybe that will continue. So uh, why don't you take it away? Yeah. So again, I was really into him as a teenager. I started, you know, obviously the first thing I heard was stepping out on MTV and I was immediately blown away by it. I thought it was incredible. And I read it. I saw that he had an album night and day, you know, I used to read Rolling Stone obsessively and read the reviews and it got a good review. And I read it and I thought, oh, this sounds really interesting. So I, I got it. And it's funny, I bought it at the same time as another album that had a very similar history for me that I was so into at the time, Dire Straits' Love Over Gold. Again, it was based on a review. And also there was a video called, uh, you know, they had a song called Private Investigations that had this really cryptic, weird, spooky video that they would only play on Night Flight, USA Network's Night Flight, which is a video show uh, shown on the USA Cable Network. And they, they never played it on MTV. I don't think I ever saw it. But it was just one of these songs where I was just like, man, this is cool. And I just loved the weird Spanish creepy guitar. And, you know, I bought the album and I loved loved the album. But it was funny because the the it was the same thing where I was super into this album as a teenager and I just kind of forgot about it. Yeah. And then later I would come again and get it on vinyl again. And I'd be like, wow, this album's still great for me. Um, and I'm sure we'll get to Dire Straits at some point. But in any way, they were favorite favorites of mine at the time, but then I just started anytime Joe Jackson would come out with something else, I would get it. You know, I got uh, the Mike's murder soundtrack on tape. I think I got that later, but that's the follow-up. And it's just this Deborah Winger movie that no one saw uh, that has one great song called Memphis. That's kind of a pulsating baseline. Again, I Graham, maybe we'll yeah. talk about, it. yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty cool song, uh, kind of a 60s soul kind of thing. Um, but again, uh, and then I got look sharp. You know, and that was perfect because I was already into Elvis Costello. You know, I already had Imperial Bedroom, which is one of my favorite albums of all time. And then his early stuff, I had Armed Forces on tape. Right. So uh, and the and the debut. So when I got Look Sharp, I'm like, this is just like Elvis Costello. And I loved every song, you know, and I was instantly into it. But what was funny around the same time, maybe a few years later, my dad got, you know, my dad liked stepping out. He didn't really get the albums or anything, but he got. Um, this album, Big World, he got a CD player and he got this album. And this is a weird live album Joe Jackson did. I'll talk about it a little bit in the in the history, but it's it's a live album of all new material and it's a three sided record. So it was kind of more of a CD length album. And he got that. And again, I taped it and I was really into it. It's kind of more of a raw thing. It was different than what he was doing. And I think my dad got Body and Soul. I don't remember how I have Body and Soul and Jump and Jive, but I had them around this time as well. And I think my dad just started buying the other Joe Jackson albums. And Body and Soul, that's one probably you would like a lot of because it's got that kind of jazzy. It's really jazzy. It's not as consistent as these two albums. Yeah, there's some duds on there, but there's some really good, you know, uh, really good songs on there. And it's very kind of... uh, jazz rock um and then i bought his classical album willpower and again the one thing i really loved about him was he was just doing something different every record you know it's in a way it's kind of a weakness too because he he's not you know he just do a crazy uh swing album right you know 15 years before that became a thing 
before swingers and all that kind of jitterbug shit happened in the 90s. He was way ahead of the curve on that. <laughs> jitterbug shit. Yeah. Like yeah. That. The 90s kind of swinger uh, kind of a lounge scene. That you know? could be our rockabilly you know, band name. Jitterbug shit. <laughs> jitterbug shit. So anyway, uh, but I love that he was just adventurous and trying different stuff. You know, it was I was really into, of course, of course, obviously my love of this type of thing comes from the Beatles who did this more than anybody, but I also Prince was doing this at the time. Every album was different. He was experimenting with shit and even REM to a lesser extent. I know you're not a fan, but I was really into them in the eighties and they were kind of pushing the envelope with every album. And I remember when I had willpower, it was when we were in college. And I remember playing this uh, with Evan's friend, Pete, and he was like, one of these guys who knew all about music. He was all into experimental music. And I was playing this and he's like, what is this? And I'm all, this is Joe Jackson. He's like, Joe Jackson, you know, but he, he was really into modern classical music and he was, he thought this album was awesome too, you know, and, and it's pretty cool. It's, I mean, as we'll talk about Joe Jackson has quite a musical background that goes beyond pop music, you know, to classical and jazz and stuff like that, as, as we, we see that with night and day, but he also did classical music and this was his first thing. So I was really blown away by this. I also remember seeing Tucker, you know, he did a jazz soundtrack for that, that yep. movie, Tucker, the Francis Ford Coppola movie. And then in college in, in, in our sophomore year, you know, one of my best friends, Dennis had, he knew these two guys that lived in my same dorm, but I was hanging out with Dennis and, um, he uh, met these guys and, and one of the guys was really into rush. And I just remember, I was trying to figure out when this was, if this was sophomore junior year, but I remember it was sophomore year because a show of hands, the live album by rush had just come out. This guy had it. And then this other, his other roommate uh, had a bunch of Joe Jackson and he bought this live 1980 to 1986, this kind of double live CD thing. And this album is fucking amazing because Joe does all of these different versions of the songs, like he'll do the songs live and they're completely different, like Fools in Love, which is from uh, Look Sharp, is slowed down. And it's got this opening bass solo by bassist Graham Maybe, who we'll be talking about a lot in this episode, uh, that's just transcendental, insane, insane beautifulness. I don't know what else to say about it. It's just an incredible piece of music. Um, and then he also had Blaze of Glory, which that's kind of when my love affair with Joe Jackson kind of ended. I remember I got beat crazy at the time, too. Um, and I think I had a used cassette of I'm the man, which I really like. Be crazy. Not so much. It's kind of a reggae ska album. Uh, it has a couple of good songs, but it's really spotty compared to the first two. So I kind of fell out of love with him and I got more into like the grunge scene and old kind of uh, heavy rock like Sabbath and uh, some hip hop shit like public enemy. And I kind of forgot about it. And then I had this whole thing where all the Joe Jackson stuff I had, most of it was on tape actually, but the Lang day was on vinyl. And it's just a long story, but I had a friend who kept my records while he was in Japan and he died and I just never got them back. So I lost all these records, like a few hundred records. Um, but then what's funny is in the late 90s, he kind of came back because I met this girl at work and I dated her for like six months. This is my first girlfriend ever. This was like 95. And she was super into Elvis Costello and Joe Jackson, which is one of the reasons we hit it off. And um, she actually ended up 
absconding when she dumped my ass she ended up absconding with my imperial bedroom cd mm, um symbolic. which sucked which sucked <laughs> yeah exactly i got kicked out of the imperial bedroom <laughs> um but i remember she Was had it because your up. armed forces weren't uh you know up to oh snuff, yeah I, I did not measure up i was i was kind of a mess and you know we weren't compatible and all things worked out in the end let's just say but yeah. she did have laughter and lust which is his 91 92 album and i remember hearing it and thinking it sucked and then I just didn't pay attention to his later work, even though he made the symphony number one in the late nineties that I've since kind of like, um, but about five, four or five years ago, I found a copy. I just happened to run across, uh, you know, I had already had look sharp. I bought look sharp probably in the late nineties and I didn't have a record player for years. So I didn't really listen to it, but I, I found out like a $2 copy, which I still have. Right. And then I found night and day about four or five years ago. And I listened to it again and I thought, Hey man, this is really good. Um, and Around this time, Jeff sent me a link to this cover version that Joe uh, Jackson did of Stan of Steely Dan's Night by Night, yeah, um, which was from this album Pretzel Logic. And I had never thought of him being into Steely Dan, but once I heard that, I was like, "Holy shit!" When I listened to him, I just heard them over and over again. And we'll talk more about that, I'm sure, in the eval, especially of you know it, it, both albums, really. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and we'll talk about it in the Zeitgeist. And then during the, the pandemic, I had this whole thing where I started writing. I was just depressed and, you know, uh, cooped up and then half working, half not working from home. Uh, and I decided to write this thing on Facebook where I just wrote these album reviews. Uh, but they were like and I would just write one every day because it started out as some Facebook challenge. Write You know, album reviews for five days. I just kept going. I, I did like. I think 150, 160 of these um, for like half the year until I got off of Facebook entirely. And they weren't like the best albums by the bands, although sometimes they were. But like in the to, just for example, the Led Zeppelin and I didn't cover one more than one album by each band. Right. So the, the Led Zeppelin one I did was like in through the outdoor just to give you an idea. You know, it's like I love that album, but it's not in my top five for the band. You know, it's just because it was the first one I got, you know, but Night and Day is the one I wrote about for Joe Jackson. Um, so for this this uh, episode, I tried listening to just about everything he did. I also listened to the um, audio book. Or not the audiobook. I read the book on Kindle, The Cure for Gravity, which is the, uh, his kind of biography, but it only covers up until the point where he gets the record deal for Look Sharp and it ends. And But it's a really good book. Um, and I also read some of his other writings, which we'll talk about later, that are a little more dubious. Um, and I listened to a lot of the other stuff, uh, you know, that came out afterwards, Volume 4, which was the early 2000s Joe Jackson Band Reunion. Again, nothing really stood out like these two records. Maybe I'm the Man is close third, uh, and Body and Soul and Big World are, are pretty decent. But other than that, you know, it's mainly these two, and that's kind of why we did this. So let's move into the Zeitgeist. So one thing about the Zeitgeist for Joe Jackson is obviously each of these albums has its own kind of Zeitgeist. That is different. Um, and the other problem with doing a Joe Jackson zeitgeist is he's just so eclectic, right? He's influenced by every kind of music imaginable. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I would say one major influence in the first, you know, obviously his first influence as a kid was Beethoven, which we'll talk about in classical music. But, you know, and obviously he was influenced like by the Beatles and Kinks and things, just like everybody else was when he was growing up. 
But the big influence that really stood out, of course, was Steely Dan. Yeah. Uh, so we get to talk about Steely Dan, Jeff. Um, uh, yes. <laughs> I, you know, I'm always down to raise do that. your. Uh, you, if you have a beer, or you have an alcoholic beverage. It's time to drink. Yeah. New newer listeners might not know. Yeah. But, uh, I am a Steely Dan obsessive in the biggest yeah. possible way. So uh, probably my favorite band of all time. Uh, have yeah, and one of mine for sure. I mean, you know. Uh, I love them too. So anyway, Steely Dan was a major influence. We'll talk about that a little bit in the history, uh, you know, and we'll talk about that in our evals as well. Um, he also mentioned Stevie Wonder. So his uh, Stevie Wonder around this time as well. Um, and then he was part of this whole scene. And I think there's a cup of uh, some, you know, nonfiction book that needs to be written about the cabaret and the pub rock scenes of London. And it probably is because it's so fascinating to me because the cabaret scene was basically the scene that evolved around England. And the reason was that is if you had a bar and you wanted to play music, you know, obviously you could get a DJ and play records, but the London or the, the musicians union forced this rule in England that all clubs had to have an equal amount of live music as DJ music. And so that meant that these kind of bar bands cropped up. And this was the scene that, um, you know, Joe Jackson came up in, but there also was this whole kind of stodgy, corny cabaret scene where these pickup bands would play with just these corny artists, you know, and um, it was really kind of almost like the Beatles never happened, you know, because you had like these schmaltzy kind of ballad singers and stuff, you know, kind of Engelbert Humperdinck, you might think of as, as that kind of model. Um, and Joe Jackson grew up in this. And I think some of his eclecticism is informed by this and some of his experience playing kind of standards and stuff like that. Now, of course, the scene for the immediate scene for um, or zeitgeist for for Look Sharp was the whole pub rock movement. And this was a movement that was born in the early 70s. And it was a pre it's it was mainly popular in London and it was a precursor to punk rock. And what it was, was obviously small bands had trouble playing in arenas and they kind of eschewed the kind of prog rock and a ring of rock for a kind of back to basics kind of direct, you know, three, two, three minute rock song format informed by R and B and rockabilly and, and uh, just, you know, uh, maybe even singer songwriting a little bit. It was primarily a live phenomenon. There wasn't really many pub rock hits at the time on the singles chart. The main one you may know is a group called Ace. Mm. They had the song How Long, right, which is sung by the great Paul Carrick, who would later sing with Squeeze and Mike and the Mechanics. And, you know, um, that's kind of that's kind of considered pub rock. Um, But the main uh, bands were Brinsley Schwartz, which was um, mainly famous for having Nick Lowe as a member who would who would also create solo albums that were in the genre. Uh, Dr. Feelgood. Um, and another band called Ducks Deluxe. There was another one called like Eddie and the Hot Rods or something. Some of this stuff is good. Some of it is kind of media. Like the Bridgeless Sports is pretty good. Like Peace, Love, and Understanding was that song Elvis Costello covered is from this era. And then you also have out of the pub rock scene, you have this whole thing that people call the angry young men. And the angry young men were mainly three dudes who we've already mentioned in Jeff's uh, personal history, Graham Parker, Elvis Costello, and Joe Jackson. Now, the thing about Graham Parker is I agree with you. I have Squeezing Out Sparks. I also love Local Girls. And there are other moments on the album I like. 
The thing about Graham Parker, though, is that Elvis Costello and Joe Jackson would not sound like they do without this dude. He said, I mean, you listen to his singing style. It sounds just like Elvis. Yeah. And he was the first. So I give him props for that. But again, I also agree with you that I like the other two way more. Um, I just have never he's he's one of those guys I kind of reserve judgment for because I think someday I'll get it. But it just doesn't really there's something it's just the songs uh, with a few exceptions just don't really hit me as hard as Elvis and, uh, and Joe Jackson. Now, Joe, Joe Jackson was also so open-minded. He was also listening to a lot of punk rock, even though he valued musicianship, obviously the other band he really liked in the early seventies was little feet. It's another band I could never get into, but they're really great musicians and songwriters. And, you know, they were technically accomplished and Steely Dan again, technical chops and really complex songs. So the punk thing, he kind of like was amused by it more than anything because he just saw, you know, these guys couldn't really play, but he liked the energy and he was definitely influenced by it for Look Sharp because he incorporated some of that energy. The main two things he mentions in his book are The Damned and The Clash. Yeah. Um, and obviously The Clash are probably the best of that. They they kind of became more accomplished than a lot of the other punk bands that did more complex stuff. Um, now, Night and Day came out a few years later uh, in 82. And, and the zeitgeist around that is more of the Latin music that Joe was really into at the time in New York. It's obviously the whole New York in the 80s thing. You know, he lived there and he would live there for, for decades. Um, and then jazz, just jazz in general. And then this kind of movement that he was also responsible for being one of the first guys of it and stepping out is definitely uh, one of, if you made a mix of this movement, you made us, this movement is called Sophistapop that's been labeled since then. I think, I don't know if they use that term in the eighties. I don't think they did. I don't recall that. Yeah. If you look on Wikipedia, you'll find Sophistapop. And I think, I think it's a label that was applied by critics afterwards to kind of describe this era. and really stepping out is one of the cornerstones of this movement. And, but really where it started was Roxy music in Avalon, the flesh and blood and Avalon albums is kind of a slick kind of, you know, jazzy atmospheric, um, very which, polished popular which I love, music. As you know, I love that. Yeah, album exactly. So much, yeah. Exactly. Uh, so, and Steely Dan, I think was a huge influence on this music because it's very jazz rock. Um, and obviously another big artist when you think of Sophistapop is Sade. Yeah. Um, and then there were other bands that came later. Um, obviously Spandau Ballet was one. They're yeah. more kind of schmaltzy and loungy. But then you had like Level 42 and Simply Red. It's just this really slick, popular, you know, very well played, uh, slick pop music. And I think the best of it kind of leans more toward the jazzy side. I would argue Sade is one of the better ones and Joe Jackson, um, whereas the other stuff is a little more yeah, kind of ballet you know we're kind of overlapping with that new romantic thing but uh what's oh yeah the... they were new rose they were new romantic early on yeah but then they kind of with true it's almost like a 50s yeah. ballad singer oh, no you know question uh, oh, yeah what's that other band uh abc is similar right uh, abc also considered part of the new row movement yeah. but again very slick they're probably in this in this bucket too because they're very slick and stylized and yeah you know there's almost something like 50s about it you know with the way the videos were and stuff the way they dress too I, yeah I mean, clearly they're influenced by that all right so let's go into the pre look look sharp history really quick so joe jackson was born um in burton upon trent staffordshire england uh his, he was born as david jackson hmm. and he spent uh his first year in uh 
a place that's got this is so British, Squadling Coat in Derbyshire. Um, <laughs> but he mainly grew up in in the area uh, known as Portsmouth. And um, well, he didn't grow up in Midsummer, so he's still alive. So that's good, true; he's yeah. still alive. But he would—he actually has a house in Portsmouth now. So he's kind of this—he's kind of this weird relationship with. And there's kind of this weird relationship where he kind of had contempt for some of the regular kind of down-home folks of England. But then when he went to university, he kind of had contempt for the elitists. So he kind of, kind of became more warm toward his uh, origins, you know. Whereas he was always trying to get out of Portsmouth, right? Um, so you know. Uh, he basically learned to play violin originally, but soon switched to the piano, uh, you know, and he actually, um, I think he picked up a, a piano from like a, a neighbor who was getting rid of it. And he got his father to kind of put one in and, uh, you know, kind of taught himself how to play and took some lessons. He was kind of, uh, bullied by other kids and, you know, kind of considered himself to be a part, if not above them. Uh, you know, his first musical love was classical music, mainly Beethoven, who he still really uh, talks he, about. Was he bullied by Gavin Troy? Because it seems like... <laughs> yeah, you know, I think when he describes in his book these characters, yeah, I definitely get a feeling they're kind of like Gavin Troy. Yeah. Um, it's true. So anyway... Uh, you know, he was really into Beethoven at first, but then he, of course, started, you know, in the late 60s, started listening to Hendrix and the Beatles and kind of got the idea he wanted to be, you know, a musician and was trying to figure out how that would work. He really wanted to be a composer. And he would even in high school, he would kind of compose stuff uh, for the other musicians in his school, you know, just already doing. But he also kind of flirted with popular music and the idea of being in a band because he'd seen you know, the reaction people had had to them. And he kind of, you know, he was kind of not the, not a pretty boy. Let's put it that, put it mildly, you know, so he wasn't, he kind of wanted that attention. And we'll talk about that more with Look Sharp because he kind of took that leader role. Kind of a um, less handsome Rick Astley looking kind of dude. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, you know, and uh, so he actually began playing piano in bars at the age of 16 um, and around this time, he also uh, got into the got a scholarship to study composition at the London's Royal Academy of Music. So as he was kind of playing in bars and that story of the skinheads that you heard at the opening was from around this time. Uh, he attended the Royal Academy of Music and he had this brutal commute that he talks about in his book from London to Portsmouth, which is not that close. Um, and he started majoring in composition. But what what he didn't like about it was that modern classical music, this really avant-garde stuff like John Cage and Schopenhauer and all these composers, they, they were much more about like, almost like you had these rules you had to follow. And it wasn't about creating a melody. It was more about following these rules. And it was like, he just felt like the composers were making music for themselves and not for other people. So yeah. he was kind of like, he's kind of a man of the people, but also like, you know, really talented and accomplished. So he's, he's always had this conflict between being like artsy, but not being too pretentious, but also pleasing people with melodic music. So he probably was kind like of, the Schoenberg 12 tone system. 12 stuff. tone it, system is yeah. exact. I totally yeah. forgot about that's exactly yeah. what he talks about. The 12 tone system yeah. is what these guys were into. And he just had no interest in that. Yeah. You know, they had contempt for people like, um, you know, some of the, some of the composers he liked, some of the um, like Sati and stuff that, yeah. that he liked um, because it was like, oh, well, that's just conventional shit. And he's like, yeah, but it's beautiful music, you know? Right. Um, so anyway, 
as he was doing this, he got a gig. He got some gigs with local bands before finally hooking up with this cover band called Edward Bear. Um, and they were they were actually pretty successful and he made a little money playing with them. And a few things during these years that really influenced him that he mentions was I mentioned the band Little Feet, but two albums were Stevie Wonder, Inner Visions and Steely Down, Count, Steely Down Countdown to Ecstasy. They, they really kind of brought him more into the popular music realm because he saw that popular music could be sophisticated. And you can hear the jazzy elements, especially of Steely Dan and Stevie Wonder being an influence on him here. Um, so Edward Bear, you know, was an established band. He was a late joiner, but not too long after that, all, all the members who were older than him just quit. They decided they'd had enough slogging it around these pubs and social clubs. And so he just asked them if he could just continue with the name and run the band himself. And he recruited some other band members, notably guitarist and singer Mark Andrews, who kind of became the de facto co-leader of the group. And then really importantly, bassist Graham Maybe, who would be an important collaborator for Joe Jackson for just decades to come. Um, and uh, the one guy who he would stick with. Interestingly enough, in the book, we learned that uh, Joe actually dated. So Mark Andrews dated Maybe's sister Jill for for a year or so. And then Joe Jackson dated her for a few years. It was his didn't, turn, I guess. Yeah, I guess it was his turn, but it didn't really work well, work out well. You know, they ended up breaking up, uh, you know, at the, around this time too, Joe Jackson started getting some interesting stirrings and, uh, you know, about his uh, sexuality, uh, but he didn't really know what to do with it. Then it turns out he would be bisexual, come out as bisexual later in life. Um, we'll talk about a particular song that, you know, kind of, led me to all wonder that when, when I heard night and day. Um, so anyway, uh, so again, the band, like many others at the time, you know, they got all this work due to this musicians union. And, uh, so that was a, they were able to sort of eke out somewhat of a living, although he worked various jobs and things, uh, because he couldn't make a living. Now, Edward bear was, getting more popular and they decided to try their hand at making a recording and they recorded a few songs um some from jackson one of jackson's is called she'll surprise you and you can look that up on youtube you can actually look up the uh it's it's under a different band name which we'll get to in a minute but he did she'll surprise you which is completely steely dan ripoff and then mark andrews had the song any more wine so andrews's compositions were typically the a-sides um, and Joe Jackson's were the B-sides, and that was kind of an issue. He had kind of a conflict because he wanted to kind of be the band leader, but this other guy, Mark Andrews, just very charismatic. So when they were going to release the music, they originally, they found out that there was a Canadian band also called Edward Bear. So when I looked at Edward Bear on YouTube, you could find him, but it's not this Edward Bear. It's the Canadian one. Mm. So they changed their name creatively to Edwin Bear for a <laughs> short time. <laughs> And then he continued to play with the band after graduating. You know, he was he, he actually graduated from the university. Uh, he switched from composition to percussion and also spent time with the jazz bands, or, you know, doing arranging and stuff and playing piano with the jazz university's jazz band. But he they ended up majoring in percussion, which is kind of interesting when you talk, think about Night and Day, a very percussion oriented album. So the band actually released those singles as Arms and Legs. They they finally, they renamed themselves to Arms and Legs. So they had three really dumb band names. Um, and they broke up, uh, you know, after the singles did not do anything. Um, but, uh, and at this time, he was still known as David Jackson. But around this time, he picked up the name nickname Joe. 
uh, this is definitely going to be one of our clues because it was based on this uh, puppet show, kind of like the Thunderbirds uh, called Joe 90. I don't remember this. I think it might have only been in England, but, yeah. you know, obviously the Thunderbirds and all that and um, Captain Scarlet and the shows in the 70s that were um I forget the guy's name. I think it's Jerry Anderson who made these puppet shows. Um, at any rate, he had he had legally changed his name to Joe by age 20. So again, he spent some more time kind of getting gigs in the cabaret circuit, and he got a really good one uh, playing at the brand new local Portsmouth Playboy Club. Mm. So Playboy had opened up a club, and what they would do is have these B-rate singers and comedians come in, and his the, the regular band would just back them up. And so, again, he's getting all this experience, just having to play all these different, learn all these different songs. And, you know, he's getting better at piano and et cetera. Um, he was also influenced by the burgeoning punk movement at the time, especially the Damned and the Clash. So that's basically the history leading up to Look Sharp. The, the next uh, step phase in his uh, career is immediately related to Look Sharp. So Jeff is going to take over. Yeah, so I'll get into my evaluation with Luke Sharp and give you the background on this. So, um, you know, you talked about it, he hooked up with uh, Graham Maybe, guitarist Gary Sanford, and and a drummer named uh, Dave Houghton, um, who was playing in a rival kind of bar band at the time uh, called Smiling Hard, and they were recording some demos. <laughs> Smiling Hard, that's funny, actually. Uh, yeah, they they were like the premier band that everybody thought was going to make it, but they yeah. kind of just folded. And so Joe Jackson, you know, because he was jealous of them when they were Edward Bear because they were so much better and so much tighter. But he he immediately snagged the drummer because he was so good. Yeah, smart move. Um, so Jackson left the Playboy Club after he was getting he got a job as a musical director for a cabaret outfit called Coffee and Cream with K's. Very yeah, nice. so Coffee and Cream was made up of uh, an African-British guy named Lance Ellington and a white lesbian woman named Bet Hanna, and they would sing these duets like they were in love, and they really hated each other. <laughs> but it was this whole act that had, like, management and a court and all these different stage hands. It was this whole production thing, and they would tour. And there's, like, video footage of them you can find on YouTube. There's a single they released. Um, but it's really schmaltzy kind of easy listening. Um, but he got the job as a musical director. So that meant he kind of arranged the songs and stuff because they had a full band and horns and all this. And But it was like they would tour all over England. And so it was a really good gig for him, even though it was not the kind of music he was interested in. But it allowed him to get some money, right? So he could record yeah. some demos in, uh, you know, autumn of 77, spring of 78 in Portsmouth. Um, and that would become Look Sharp, right? And there's this producer named uh, David Kirschenbaum and heard a demo of this and signed him to, I uh, liked it, obviously, and signed him to AM Records in 78. And then they basically re-recorded a lot of those uh, songs probably at higher quality and, you know, got it together more. And uh, this is what became the album Look Sharp, which was released in the very early part of 1979 in, in, uh, in January of 79. And, you know, as we've been talking about, it's kind of an eclectic mix of, you know, rock, jazz, new wave. We talked about Elvis Costello and Graham Parker's influences in, and contemporaries there. And uh, the, the album was pretty successful. You know, I, I mean, it has a lot of acclaim. 
Uh, Rolling Stone, and, you know, I don't know if we have a lot of respect for what Rolling Stone has to say about most things, but, like, they listed it as one of the top 100 best debut albums of all time, 98 out of 100. I would probably say it's higher than that. I'm sure Rolling Stone has shit like Green Day's album and other garbage. Yeah, exactly. At the top. Exactly. You can just knock out about 60 or 70 of their top 100, and and this is probably in the top 40 is my guess. Um, And the single that we played at the beginning, uh, Issue Really Going Out With Him, was was a pretty big hit. Uh, Number nine in Canada. Um, It was... I think it was a pretty big hit in the U.S. as well. Um, yeah, it, went, it went gold in the U.S. He did, he never went anything beyond gold, uh, but it went gold. And yeah, it was like, uh, I think Is She Really Going Out With Him was uh, number 20 in the U.S. So it, that's pretty good for a debut yeah. from a, just an obscure British guy. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, that's the case. And so... Uh, Look Sharp was heavily influenced by reggae music, of course. And, uh, you know, he he wanted to, uh, another influence of the many that we talked about, um, he really wanted to, he said, Joe Jackson, a quote here, he said he wanted to capture a spontaneous feel on the album. Um, a lot of the tracks are at first, are first takes and there's no overdubs. Um, he he says, although now we think of it as a bit thin, we wanted a bit more live band sound. In retrospect, you always feel there's something you can improve on. Next time around, we'll feature the guitar a little bit more. So that's kind of his thoughts at the time on that. The the band recorded this was, of course, Joe on vocals, piano, and harmonica, Gary Sanford on guitar, Graham maybe on bass, which I'll talk about more in a second, and David Houghton on drums. And in more recent times... Joe's thoughts on this album. He said, uh, and this is from his website that he does a lot of his writing. He said, uh, a quote here says, what can anyone say about something they did so long ago? I'm not embarrassed by it or not most by most of it. Anyway, it positively reeks of London in 1978 and 79. And well, it's what it is. I'm glad people like it still like it though. I think some of that is nostalgia and a tendency to romanticize people's first albums Maybe that's the case. Uh, and the later ones must somehow be less authentic. For a first album, this one's not bad, but I was only 23 when I made it. And it would be pretty weird if I didn't think I had done better things since. So anyway. Um, the, the Yeah, I'll talk about that a little bit more in my evaluation of Night and Day, because that kind of plays into his identity of what how he sees himself, you know, okay. versus this album. But anyway. Yeah, the romanticizing about people's first albums is something that I'm about to do. So it's funny that yeah. he, calls, he calls that out. So um, I think it's a great debut album. Um, there are many great debut albums uh, at this time in, in the late 70s, early 80s. We've talked about a lot of those in the past um, and previous shows. The Pretenders album came out around this time, the first one, which is definitely probably in the top 10 of that list of top ta- debut albums in my book. Me um, too. You know, th- there's, a, there's a bunch of others I'm not going to go into. The Cars. The Cars. You know, yeah, there's, yeah. There's a Even Elvis Costello's uh, debut album is quite good. So Yeah, the, you know. the, the, um, the Talking Heads first album is, is yeah. in that, you know, well as well, right? And, and many others. Um. Yeah, it's a new wave album. You know, we talked about him being sort of one of the denizens of new wave and all that. But this album is very straight ahead rock, rockabilly type stuff in in, in some ways. Um, And I like that. You know, I I think it definitely adds to um, the the mood of it. And and it works well. The eclectic mix of things that he does, I think, works well. He has good taste, maybe is what I'm trying to say. 
Um, you know, Elvis Costello comparison, Armed Forces came out the same year. And clearly Joe was sort of uh, maybe conscientious of the fact that people compared, uh, you know, conscientious in the sense of he he didn't want, he wanted to avoid comparisons to Elvis Costello, worried about people, um, you know, thinking too much, but he said that, that comparison too much, but he said, uh, you know, that uh, he wanted to get away from all that macho shit, but at the same time, he didn't want to do Elvis Costello, God, I've been hurt in love thing either. Although that's exactly what he did. Even though <laughs> songs like that try to put forward a realistic approach to relationships, I think my songs are all the songs of a survivor rather than sort of, you know, than cultivated hostility. It's funny that he says all this because he, when he's complaining about Elvis Costello or maybe saying that Elvis Costello is exactly what his songs are, in my opinion. Yeah, we just heard one at the beginning of the show. We just heard one. Uh, so, anyway. but, but before you move on from the Elvis Costello comp- comparison, so one thing he would do at the time as interviewers would, you know, obviously ask him about this, you know, you sound a lot like Elvis Costello, you know, whatever. And he would say, Elvis, isn't that that fat old dead guy? You know, he yeah. would just talk about Elvis Presley. And But late later in his uh, biography, he talks about this and he's all, actually, I see it as a compliment. So, yeah, I, I, I had, you know, even though I think I was doing something that was different uh, enough. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't mind the comparison. So at any rate. Yeah, no, it, exactly. So, I mean, it's just funny, all the stuff he was sort of trying to distance himself from Elvis Costello, but all his descriptions of Elvis Costello are even in some ways, in my estimation, more, um, more uh, applicable to, to Joe Jackson's song. So yeah, I agree. I agree. Totally. Um, you know, a lot of his songs are, again, angry, sardonic, self-effacing. Um, I, I like all this, by the way. These are all positives in my book. Um, you can, I, you know, you can almost taste the angst, the disdain, the disdain for things uh, crossed with kind of a longing, um, which I appreciate. Um, this is a bass album. We talked about Graham maybe, and and to me, I always I like bass a lot. I like great bassists a lot across a lot of different genres. And one of the things that always struck me about this album is how forward in the mix and up front um, the bass was part of all of these songs. And I'm just a fan when a great bass player like Graham is is given the center stage to do his thing, and that's certainly the case. Uh, I mean, with this obviously album. Joe Jackson did that because Graham maybe is amazing. Yeah. And he even talks about him in his book. He's like, when I first met him, I was just blown away by how good this guy was. And that's why he always kept, even though the other band, Joe Jackson band broke up, uh, he kept Graham maybe for a long time, as much as he could. And he was just an important collaborator because he's such a great bass player. And yeah, it's the bass is kind of the lead instrument on this album. The guitar is like very, I mean, it's there, but it's kind of this jagged, almost rhythmic thing, whereas the bass is playing all these really complex melodic lines and stuff. And yeah, his bass playing on this album is just legend, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think he's the musical star of this album, right? Yeah. In in almost every way. So, um, all right, so let me talk about a few of the tracks. I'll play a few clips here. I'll go through them. So the the, the album opens with uh, One More Time. So let me remind people about what this sounds like. Start to fall 
So, great opener. Obviously, we were just talking about the bass, very uh, prominent there. Joe Jackson said about this song that he bought a, a cheap secondhand upright piano and worked on it with a driving guitar rift and sort of anguished lyrics, right? And uh, he says about it, the guy can't believe the girl wants to leave. You know, tell me one more time, say that again, right? Uh, he taken a little piece of my breakup, one moment, one feeling, and embellished it into something else, he says. So, I guess that's how fiction works, not creating something false, but creating new truths out of bits of old ones. Uh, we just create new music by endlessly reshuffling the same old chords and scales. So that's Joe talking about this song. But again, it's just a hard rocking opener. Love it. Um, the, the next song on the album is called Sunday Papers. I don't have a clip of this one, uh, but it has very funny lyrics in my estimation. Um, he says something, the lyrics are, I got nothing against the press. They wouldn't print it if it wasn't true. If you want to know about the gay politician, if you want to know how to drive your car, if you want to know about the new sex position, you can read it in the Sunday papers. You know, obviously all very kind of tongue in cheek and sardonic and all that. Um, there's another part where he talks about his mother with her spastic eyes. It's, you know, sits at home and rolls her spastic eyes. It's supposed to be funny. Um, very, I, I don't know. I just love this song too. It's the music. Yeah, it's to me. great. It's great. He live, he would, uh, I mean, one of the things about this album too is he, you know, there isn't a whole lot of piano on this album. You know, he's he's basically the of lead singer and he kind of was influenced by the punk bands. He wanted to be a leader when he was in Edward Bear. He was kind of jealous that Mark Andrews was doing all these antics on stage. So he really wanted to be up front. So if you see live clips at this time, he's not at the piano that much. He's mostly up front. And when when he would do this song, he would take out a newspaper as a prop and just kind of sing the song while flipping through it, yeah. you know. Yeah, this is a great one. It's kind of that reggae influence too, heavily reggae influence. Uh, definitely, definitely. Um, Issue really going out with him is next. And we played that at the opening. Um, my favorite part of this song, uh, uh, music is great, of course. But lyrically, the very first line is pretty women out walking with gorillas down my street, which is, <laughs> you know, funny. You can just picture him looking out the window, seeing, you know, some attractive young lady with some dude. He's just like, oh, look at that gorilla, you know, just with that longing and anger that uh, we talked about uh, before. Um, yeah, I really identified with this song when I was uh, young because, you know, of course, I got no love. I was too fucking uh, too much of a kind of an incel kind of character, I guess. And this is kind of almost like incel-y, this song. You yeah, know, it's uh, it is very, very much, bitter, yeah. very bitter, very bitter. Um, but it's great. I mean, it's one of his best songs ever. I mean, and it's probably one of the ones that'll be remembered the most of all these. I agree. And then even when he's trying to sing about, you know, being in love and, and, a, and a happy thing with his next song, Happy Loving Couples. Oh, yeah. You know, it's also really kind of dark and he's almost angry that he's happy and, you know, or yeah. angry. like it's it's a little bit ironic. It's a little bit sardonic. It's a little bit uh, strident. It's all it's a great song. But it also sounds a lot like that Elvis Costello song, Miracle Man. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, it's kind of, 
Yeah, that's that's interesting. I didn't because I always think of happy loving couples as kind of being more peppy, but I guess it is because Miracle Man's kind of heavy to me, like a kind of slow. But I, I'll have to listen to him again side by side. Yeah. I have no doubt that he heard that song. Yeah, but let's just put it that way. But yeah, um, a couple other songs here. Uh, you know, Throw It Away is also a good one. Kicks uh, ass. Yeah, kicks ass. Uh, Baby, stick around. Uh, great, great song. And then we have the title track, uh, Look Sharp, that I'm going to play a little bit of here. Anyway, you get the idea here. Uh, I love that song. I love the chorus of it. <clears throat> I love how the chorus resolves. Um, great title track. Um, well, before you move on, we got to talk about that. And you got to have no illusions part because I just hear Michael McDonald almost coming in on that. That yeah. is so Steely Dan. It's oh, yeah, insane. Yeah. That's yeah, why I like you it. Right? Gotta have no illusions. I can yeah. just almost like my Mike. I could almost hear a uh, like new wave Michael McDonald, but in the background, it just really reminds me of of them. And yeah, the whole song is great. Killer bass line again. You know, just one of the one of his best songs ever. Old Michael McDonald or modern day Jerry Garcia, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a little inside joke. I, a little inside joke. I'll just tell the joke. I was watching the Doobie Brothers 50th anniversary thing, and Michael McDonald's on there singing, and my wife walked by and said, Is that Jerry Garcia? And he happened to be singing, uh, he happened to be singing uh um uh, what was the song now? I'm trying to remember. Uh uh You Belong to Me, right? He's singing You yeah. Belong to Me. My wife said, Is like, is he talking about the dessert buffet? Because he's Rather than rotund, <laughs> your dude. wife is just like one Michael Michael McDonald joke after another. I know. Well, it was all at the same time, right? Yeah, it was yeah. all like when he was on. He's a, he's yeah. he's a, he's let himself go a little bit. Uh, yeah. He's an older dude, and he's and he's uh, not very svelte. So anyway, uh, I gotta give props up because those were funny jokes. Anyway, all right. Uh, maybe I'll even edit that out, but probably won't because it's funny as shit. No, just right. leave it in. Yeah, uh, fools in love. Uh, Again, similar in a way to Happy Loving Couples, kind of this, uh, but this one is, again, him pointing out that, uh, the, the, I'm going to play a clip here and then I'll talk about the lyrics. Right. 
Yeah, that's, I mean, you got me on the Selvis Costello thing out. I just hear watching the detectives. I was just going to say that. Yeah. Oh, I was yeah, just going to say watching the detectives. It's the same, it's the same song almost. Uh, yeah, totally watching the detectives. Uh, but it, it, it it's almost, great. yeah, it is. It, it almost, I got to play them back. I should have did a, I should have done a mashup of that. Yeah, yeah. Because the bass and the, the tempo is almost exactly the same. It's yeah. Almost exactly the same in my ear. So anyway, um, the lyrics, uh, fools in love, are there any creatures more pathetic? Um, you know, and then the end of the song, the, the turn, of course, is uh, fools in love are zeros. Because I should know because I'm one of the, this fools in love again, right? So he's just, he, I think he's angry that he's happy. Uh, or he's maybe not happy. He thinks he should be. Anyway, the, just sort of the angry young man thing. But uh, great song, nevertheless, right? Yeah. Um, watching the fools in love—that would be the Bill McClintock uh, mashup with a similar song. Although he wouldn't do that mashup. He's more talented than that. Uh, uh, Instant Mash uh, is, a, is the second to the last song on the album, and Joe Jackson says that. Uh, it's about his unsuccessful tenure working in a retail establishment. Uh, he's talked about in a supermarket, there's music that, what, at work. It drives you crazy. It says he's screaming for the door right in the, in the, uh, the lyrics. Work there for a year or two, and, and uh, you get to like it. I don't work in uh, supermarkets anymore kind of thing. So, you know, he's just having fun. You know, it's just funny. Yeah. It's a funny song. Uh, the, the second, or that was the third to the last song. The second to the last song is Pretty Girls. Um, Obviously, that's a 60s, uh, 50s doo-wop, doo-wop, diddy kind of thing where he says, here she comes, it's walking down the street. Um, you know, this song, he, people have criticized it because he's sort of ogling these uh, pretty girls. And he says, uh, you know, the lyric, by the way, is they say the mini, the mini skirt is coming back in style. I say it's not fair, but what do they care? In a 2019 interview, he said it's his worst song. And he picked out... Uh, you know, pretty girls. And, and he said that uh, as his worst song, and he said, in retrospect, it's kind of a stinker. It's embarrassing, ogling girls. Maybe he'd prefer to ogle boys now, but um, I mean, he says that's kind of lame. This is childish and silly and derivative, but I was 22 when I wrote it. And he says kind of uh, sardonically, uh, not everyone can be a prodigy, uh, but it's still a good song. I like it. It's, interestingly enough, there is a song called Pretty Boys on his third album, Be Crazy. And it's kind of more of a ska song, but it's like, it's more contemptuous. It's more kind of like the gorillas, you yeah. know, from uh, Is She Really Going Out With Him? But it's interesting that he has a Pretty Boys song as well as a Pretty Girls song. Yeah, well, he he kind of uh, goes he likes both, both ways. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, the last song is Got the Time. Uh, one of my favorite lyrics is wake up, got another day to get through now. Got another man to see. I got to call him on the telephone. Got to find a piece of paper kind of thing. So it's just, I don't know, the, the, the shuffle hard, uh, the shuffle yeah. and the hard scrap work, existence. Working, work, yeah. Yeah. working yeah. existence, middle class existence. Yep. Um, it's a great song. It's a rocker too, you know. Um, I like it. So, all right. So, evaluation here uh you know joe jackson's kind of an interesting dude he's clear, clearly very talented and and a bright guy but the one thing about him that i just it just irks me is this dude's biggest love is not ladies or gentlemen or even music it's smoking he loves smoking <laughs> <laughs> everything about smoking he loves every you know the culture around smoking where you smoke how you smoke He's angry when people don't let him smoke. He's angry when people let him smoke. 
He loves like cigarettes are the love affair of his life. And um, quite the opposite for me. I can't fucking stand cigarettes. They make me want to puke. And I just have active disdain for all things cigarette and tobacco and smoking. So that's uh, me. Right. Uh, so that's one where he and I differ. Well, there's a couple areas where we might differ, but that's certainly one. Um, one area where uh, he and I are very much aligned is he's a steely Dan nut. And he has this quote where he says uh, he's met people who profess to be Steely Dan fans like himself, but don't know that Walter Becker has made two solo albums. I did. Uh, Becker's solo efforts seem to be overshadowed by Fagan's, but in my opinion, this is uh, Joe's opinion, the 1994 album uh, is not uh, called uh, 11 Tracks of Whack is not only better than Becker's uh, second, but better than any of Fagan's and better than a lot of Steely, Dan, Steely Dan's post-comeback work. All right, Joe, you're wrong. Absolutely 100% wrong. This is a ridiculous take. Um, there's no way any of Becker's solo stuff is better than um, any of Fagan's solo stuff. Sorry. Certainly not better than The Nightfly, which is like one of the greatest albums of all time. It's not even close to Kamakuriad, and it's not even close to Morph the Cat or Sunken Condos of later vintage, which arguably are okay, not anywhere near as good as The Nightfly and all that. But... I mean, come on, like Walter Becker's solo albums have their moments. They're okay. But I think this is just a contrarian view. He just wants to like Walter Becker's solo albums. He's probably like, I'm a bigger fan than you kind of statement. But I've never listened to any of this shit. I've listened. I have the Nightfly on vinyl. That's as far as I've gotten. So, Uh, oh, I've I've listened to Comic Curiad. But I haven't. Yeah, I haven't listened to the other ones, really. So none of the Becker stuff, So. Yeah, and, and you know, like the the later Steely Dan albums, like Everything Must Go and 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 things like that, and Two Against Nature, he doesn't like. I happen to like them. They're certainly not anywhere close to the classic Steely Dan yeah. of the seventies, but I think they they're they're good in their way. They're different Steely Dan albums. You know, people compare the eras. You really can't, um, in my estimation. But that's another show for another time. But. Again, the Walter Becker albums are inferior to all of the above. And so I think Joe's just trying to be a little bit of a provocateur there. And he's absolutely wrong about that. Um, And I will be more than happy to talk with him on video because he would be smoking if I tried to talk to him (laughs) in person. Um, Overall, on this album, I think, uh, as as far as the final evaluation, um, I do think this album and Joe Jackson will be viewed positively in the future. I, I don't think he's going to enjoy some major renaissance and appreciation. Um, certainly, I don't think that's the case. But, I mean, my philosophy on these things is like really high quality is just just that, really high quality. And I think um, to some degree when um, new wave of the 80s and you know things around that orbit come in and out of favor, when it comes into favor, Joe Jackson's stuff will be there. Um, this album, certainly the album you're talking about, most definitely. Um, but yeah, I, I'm slightly long here. I, I, I don't think this is going to be like, you know, 30 years from now, Joe Jackson is going to be seen as this, you know, undiscovered genius. But I think um, his best stuff will be seen uh, positively uh, in in many regards. Um, you know, I, I, one thing I didn't mention is the album cover of this album is very iconic with him with the uh, kind of fancy shoes in the shadow, which he didn't like the album cover um, I read. But it's, really, yeah, he didn't I don't like remember it. reading that. Yeah, that's crazy because it's really good. It's really good. The it's iconic. Cover, yeah. yeah, it's people 
point to it as being a great um, album cover. Uh, and if you've never seen it, you should take a look at it because it's a pretty cool um, photo. Uh, look, oh, look, this is supposed to be the album war, right? So is, can I make a case that this is better uh, than Night and Day? Eh, maybe, maybe not. I mean, I love Night and Day too. Um, I think that this album has more songs on it that I like than Night and Day, but the Night and Day album maybe have better songs in, in some regard. Um, the top of the top might be higher, but I would give this album an edge uh, in the album more for the sole reason that it's a debut album. So exactly what Joe is complaining about. You know, Joe is complaining about Elvis Costello and using all sorts of, you know, kind of quasi-derogatory uh phrases and descriptions of Elvis Costello's music, which are actually more apt to Joe's music. And so (laughs) totally, I think that, uh, you know, maybe his, you know, dissing debut album fetishism is just another way of saying that Joe thinks this is his best album too. So, um, I think it is, and that's why. So, uh, there you go. There is a look sharp. And so let's talk about night and day. Okay. So before going into night and day, I want to briefly, kind of go into uh, kind of the history around these albums. So the history between Look Sharp and Night and Day, and then a little bit of the history, um, you know, after Night and Day, uh, probably the the latter will be just brief highlights. But what happened after Look Sharp? Well, Joe Jackson was more popular than he ever thought he would be from this album. This album was, you know, it wasn't massive on the platinum scale, but it was pretty big and he became... Uh, well-known. He actually played at the, the Hope and Anchor, which is one of the famous pub rock clubs. He actually finally played there uh, after this and, and started doing tours and stuff and was huge. And then he followed this up with an album called I'm the Man, uh, which was later in 79. Um, and that album is almost a carbon copy of, of the debut, but the songs are great. Uh, Jeff mentioned I'm the Man. That was the first single. That didn't chart, but he, then he had an even bigger hit than... Um, is she really going out with them with a kind of similarly t- uh, themed song called it's different for girls, which is a really good song. UK number five, you know, it didn't really chart in the U S but the U S uh, you know, it was top 20 uh, and uh, it went gold in, in both countries. Um, and he followed that up with beat crazy in 1980. Now this was similar in the sense of being kind of new wave tinged rock, but it's much more reggae and ska influenced. Um, you know, it had a, it had the title cut and Pretty Boys that were released as singles. Um, the album didn't do that well. It didn't crack the top 40. And in a way, Joe had kind of hit a dead end here, he thought, with the Joe Jackson band. Um, he basically, on the liner notes, he said, this album represents a desperate attempt to make some sense of rock and roll. In the end, it was doomed to failure. Um, and this was kind of represented the end of the Joe Jackson band, except for Graham Maybe. So Graham Maybe stayed with Joe Jackson, but Dave Houghton on drums didn't want to tour anymore. And then again, he, Joe Jackson was kind of at a dead end and he wanted to do something else. So he ended up creating this album called Jump and Jive, 1981. And this was a covers album of both swing and what's called Jump Blues. Jump Blues was kind of a precursor post-swing kind of music, mainly made famous by Louis Jordan. And so there are Louis Jordan covers on this album. My wife's super into Louis Jordan. She has like compilations. She played them for me when we first started going out. It's not really my thing, but it's kind of cool music. And I re- immediately recognized this as what Jump and Jive was, because of course I had heard that before. Um, and then uh, also Cab Calloway is, uh, uh, you know, it's a tribute to him. So there are covers from him. This did not do that well, you know, as far as what I think of it. 
uh, this would be crazy. I'm not crazy about. They're not something I pull out ever really to listen to. But I do think it's cool that he tried different stuff. So after this, he decided that he wanted to, you know, he'd kind of he kind of had this idea that rock and roll, you know, in a New York Times interview after Night and Day was released, he kind of had this quote that said rock and roll is too narrow and limiting. That's why I've been trying to make connections with earlier traditions. Um, and during this uh, hiatus after Jumping Jive, where he'd gotten rid of almost all of his band, he kind of thought he might like to move to New York. Um, and this is a clip he where he talks about that. What attracts you to New York? Oh, lots of things. Um, it just suits the way I am, you know, because I'm a night person and I like to stay up late and get up late. And uh, um, I like the freedom of New York. I just feel a freedom to be able to do anything you want to do and whenever you want to do it, you know. And you don't have that freedom in London. It's a lot more repressed. But... Um, New York has a real a freedom about it and also a real positive feeling. You know, I mean, cab drivers drive around with, with stickers on their cabs and say, I love New York, you know. I mean, like, no, that would never happen in London, you know. I mean, it's just like... It would be weird for cab drivers in London to have an I love New York sticker on their car. Right? <laughs> yeah, but I think this kind of really sets the scene for this album because this album is really a, a comma, almost a concept album of an Englishman being in New York and the stuff he runs into and both dangerous and both exciting, you know, and, yeah. and it kind of, it kind of was what his attitude was at this time. And also when he was look when he looked back at looking, look sharp, as we mentioned, one of the comments he made, you know, saying, Oh, I was 23 or, you know, and, and I did better stuff afterwards. One of the things was he wasn't really, trying as hard because he was mostly writing these simple pop songs which given his musical you know accomplishments as far as being composer and a classical musician and jazz musician he wasn't really pushing himself past his comfort zone now you may some people may argue that that is why look sharp is so good because it's got these simple straight ahead songs that are actually not that simple really i mean something like look sharp is pretty complex and you know it's it's at any rate, I'll talk about that more in the eval. But but again, one of the attractions to New York was he also became interested in salsa from getting this collection in a record store by this band called the Fania All-Stars called Salsa Live. So salsa and Afro, Afro-Cuban music. And then when he moved to New York, he saw a bunch. He started seeing these different acts in places like the Corso Latin Ballroom, all in upper Manhattan, including that band, the Fania All-Stars, and another musician, Eddie Palmieri. Eddie Palmieri, who has a big influence on the piano playing Joe does on Night and Day. And then, of course, Ruben Blades, who I think most people have heard of because he's also an actor. And Joe would later play piano on one of his solo albums. Uh, Willie Colon, uh, Celia, Cruz, Celia Cruz, and Tito Puente. I think most people have heard that name before. Um, so he had been really interested in this, and he decided to try his hand at it. Um, and so he started recording again with David Kirschenbaum. Now, David Kirschenbaum was uh, mentioned in uh, Jeff's uh, section on Look Sharp. He was the one who kind of cleaned up the mixes and and re-recorded some stuff to make Look Sharp, the demos uh, that Joe had created, sound better. And he also would continue to work with um, Joe on Body and Soul and Big World, as well as Live 1980 to 86. After that, Joe left the A&M, so he didn't really work with him again. Uh, Kirschenbaum had to convince, it's funny because during the recordings, 
uh, as we'll get to in when it when the album was released, Kirschenbaum actually had to convince Jackson that Stepping Out was the hit. Um, it wouldn't be released until the third single from the album, which is just insane to me. Because if you listen to this album, it just really, I'm, you're all, you got to be like, that's the song people are going to gravitate oh, yeah. toward. Of course. Um, now, as far as the personnel, is it a lot more of a detailed uh, lineup than was in the debut, which was the core Joe Jackson band. So Joe Jackson also plays a lot more on this album, which is something I'll get to when I talk about the eval. You know, he's he does arrangements, orchestrations, he plays various kinds of keyboards and pianos, as well as the saxophone um, and the vibraphone. Uh, and then, uh, you know, he had some other people doing synthesizer programming. He had Graham maybe on bass. He had hot, he brought in these uh, accomplished percussionists from that kind of salsa world. Larry Tolfrey played drums, timbales and percussion and Sue Hadjopoulos, who he would work with again and again throughout his career who did, does all kinds of, you know, uh, xylophone, percussion, et cetera. She even does, plays flute on a song. Um, and then a couple other musicians, uh, Ricardo Torres on bongos, Cowbell and Claves, and then backup vocals by Grace Milan and Al Weissman. So it's a lot more of a big band, a lot more ornate than the debut. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, the album cover is also iconic for Night and Day. It was uh, done by an artist named Philip Burke, and it's kind of giving you that 20s vibe. Like, it almost looks like old, like, 20s magazine or something. And it reminds me of the uh, famous artist um, Al Hirschfeld, mm. who was also known as the Lion King. It kind of reminds me of him. But it's such an iconic, it gives, and of course, the title Night and Day is inspired by the Cole Porter song Night and Day. And of course, his influences on this album are also kind of the classic Tin Pan Alley songwriting of people like Irving Berlin, Cole Porter, and Ira and George Gershwin. Now, the album was released. It was uh, very successful commercially. It was his most successful album ever. It was gold in uh, a few different countries. It was actually platinum in Netherlands and Canada, although platinum in Canada is like you know, less copies than gold in the U.S. Um, but anyway, it was number three in the U.K., number four in the U.S., and what's interesting is the singles he the first single he released was Real Men, which is like one of the least commercial songs on the album, even though it's a catchy song and a great song. It's pretty controversial lyrically. And, you know, it was kind of a weird choice. It didn't really do well at all, except in Australia, where it hit the top 10, which is kind of interesting. Probably would um, do well in southern U.S. markets. Uh, no, I know. And he even had a video for it and it was played on MTV. But it's like with the lyrics, as we'll get to, it was that was pretty bold. Uh, the next one was the ballad Breaking Us in Two, which is you know, a great song and and definitely a catchy single. And it did better. It, it was um, number 18 in the US. But of course, he finally got around to releasing Stepping Out. And that was the, the you know, the big one, right? It, it made top 10 in the UK and US charting at number six and number four, respectively. Um, it also was nominated for a few Grammys, Record of the Year and Best Pop Vocal Performance Male. Uh, he followed up with a couple other singles and other world and slow songs. Those didn't chart at all, right? Most of the acclaim was positive, um, and you know it it kind of made him a bit of a star. But what's interesting is afterward that that would kind of be his peak. He didn't really peak after that, um, you know, because he was kind of again doing this very eclectic thing where he was trying a bunch of different stuff. So he followed that up with Mike's Murder soundtrack. You know, it had the single Memphis. Didn't really chart, but I remember hearing it on the radio and yep, really liking it. 
And then uh, Body and Soul did a little better. It was number 14 in the UK, number 20 in the US. Um, and it had a single, You Can't Get What You Want, which is a really slick kind of jazz rock, funky pop song. Uh, great bass playing by Maybe on that one, um, as usual. Number 15 in the US, so it was kind of a hit. Big World was a, was a follow-up, and it was a strange one. It was a three-sided live album recorded in 86, but it was all new songs. And the audience is instructed to be silent through the whole thing. It's kind of like Jackson Brown's Running on Empty in that way, because that's another album where it's a live album of all new songs. But this one is like the audience had to be silent. So when you listen to it, it doesn't even sound live. You know, so I'm not sure what he was going for, but it's pretty solid. It's more of a back to basics rock album. Uh, I like this album quite a bit. And it's, um, you know, probably in the top five of Joe Jackson things for me. Um, it did OK. Uh, he followed up with Live 8086, which I recommend anybody to go on YouTube or Spotify. Check that out, this album out. This is an incredible live album. Uh, really great versions of the of the songs, different takes on them from various tours throughout the years. Willpower, I mentioned, was a classical album in 87, as well as the Tucker soundtrack. Didn't do well. Blaze of Glory, Laughter and Lust were some pop albums he released in 89 and 91, respectively. He did some more classical music in the 90s with Night Music and Symphony Number no. 1. 94 and 99 respectively didn't do well he uh wrote his biography in 1999 which i think is well worth a read i wish there was an audiobook of it with him reading because he could he does a lot of kind of cockney stuff there's a lot of gavin troy in this book let's put it that way is gavin troy from our midsummer episode that jeff called out at the beginning um and he also followed up night and day with night and day two in 2000 if you listen to this it's kind of more fusion jazz modern jazz um it does not hold the power of this album like it is the songs are not as memorable and i feel that way most about mostly about his career from this point on he reunited with the joe jackson band in 19 in 2003 for the album volume four again it's kind of that look sharp kind of sound but it's just not as memorable right the songs just aren't there i find this with a lot of artists when they get older they're trying to do that they they go through the motions of recording the album how they did but there's just not the magic of the catchy songs uh you know i feel this way about paul mccartney and other artists where they just can't get that magic again now jeff alluded to this but not only is Joe Jackson really into smoking, he's actually a smoking rights advocate <laughs> and has written several, not only several blog posts, but he wrote uh, articles for the New York Times. So he basically lived in New York this whole time and his love affair from, for New York abruptly ended when uh, smoking laws started to become more strict in New York and the rest of the United States where, you know, you weren't allowed to smoke in bars and anywhere you wanted to. Uh and so he started writing these articles for various publications about why the smoking ban was wrong, why the science about smoking causing lung cancer was wrong. Uh, and he wrote this huge treatise that's available on the Internet in PDF form called Smoke Lies in the Nanny State in 2007. And this is like a really well-researched a uh, very eloquent defense of smoking that is almost entirely wrong about everything. Um, he gets the science complete, completely misunderstands the science, even though he goes into a lot of, it's almost like tobacco industry wrote this fucking thing. You know, it's yeah. kind of the same shit they were writing. So it is funny to me, but it was kind of a surprise to discover this. Um, and, uh, you know, I'll have a little more to say about this later, but I almost feel like that's a, uh, you know, just a weird quirk of his. And I agree with Jeff, I'm not in favor of this, but I think it's interesting that he took it this far, you know, that he's so into smoking, he 
he really did his research and tried to write this these op-eds and really get well, a movement. Well, he did research, going. but it's not good research. It's just like a lot no, of detail. He just misunderstands like epidemiology and how we know that smoking causes lung cancer. And he didn't really, you know, it's it's he's not a statistician. Let's put it that way. And he also uses the same tactics the tobacco industry used to kind of sow doubt about the science. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, there's no doubt that it's moronic causes is what it cancer. is. Yeah. It's just so wrong and stupid. And he, uh, you know, he's like saying, he had a whole thing about like, I have no idea how secondhand smoke could cause anyone any harm. It's like, well, it's the same way firsthand smoke does, idiot. Yeah. You know, anyway. I will yeah, stop there's, obvi- there's obviously a lot of science behind it. You can you can go read his stuff and then just read any article about smoking and see where he gets it wrong. Or don't uh, read then, his stuff. In yeah, fact, or don't read me. his stuff at any rate. So one of the more interesting things he did in recent years, he's released a bunch of albums. They're kind of in that same laughter and lust, blaze of glory, big world, uh, you know, wheelhouse. But one of the most interesting things he does, is he did this album called The Duke, which is a tribute to Duke Ellington. He has a bunch of guests on there. And so you, if you want to hear Iggy Pop do a very strange version of It Don't Mean a Thing If You Ain't Got That Swing, you can listen to it. I actually think it kind of works in a weird way. But, you know, I like that he keeps trying to do stuff. It's just I don't think he's ever hit upon the magic that he hit on these two albums. So as far as Night and Day goes, um, let's go back to that. So, again, this album had a lot of meaning for me when I was younger. I really loved it. And, again, I, I mentioned in my history I rediscovered it. Now, this album is different than look sharp although i think look sharp has so many conceptual themes it can almost be a concept album especially about unrequited love and being a rejected young man there's a lot of that but there's it's basically an album of songs whereas this is like almost like a concept album you know all the songs bleed into each other in really interesting ways it's almost like they they kind of are it's almost like he's playing one on a turntable and then mixing in the other one and they kind of overlap Um, And it's got this, a lot of the songs are more about creating atmosphere than about being a complete song. Um, And I really, really think the album creates quite a mood. Uh, The majority of of the album is this Latin jazz, not all of it. Toward the end, it kind of veers off from that on the day side, right? We'll talk about the sides of the album. Uh, But, and that may limit its appeal for some people, like if they're not into this kind of music, because it's very specifically this kind of music. it's more representative of Joe Jackson in a lot of ways than Look Sharp because it deal it it shows his skills as an arranger and as a player. I mean, he plays all these different synthesizers and keyboards on this album and we'll be playing clips. It's freaking awesome. He's really good. Um, it's funny too, because Robert Criscow is one critic who he's kind of like Joe Jackson is kind of okay to him, but he kind of he he kind of dissed him by calling the the Billy Joel of New Wave, which I think is kind of funny. It's actually not completely untrue because, again, Billy Joel was another guy who would try all this different stuff. That is funny, though. I have to give it is, it is, it's uh, Yeah, it's kind of kind of not completely off the mark. Um, now, again, Graham maybe is back here. And again, he's great on the album, although he's not it's not as he's not as much of a lead instrument on this album as on Look Sharp. But of course, his baseline on Stepping Out is immortal. It's one of the most recognizable baselines of all time. Uh, and I think for this album, the whole is greater than the parts for the most part, with the exception of a few of the songs that really stand out. It's more about the atmosphere. It's more about the album as a whole, the experience as a whole. Um, and again, you can see his influence on the cabaret circuit as well as the his, his uh, learning that he got from the Academy of Music. Uh, 
So the, so let's go through the album uh, and then I'll kind of give my thoughts at the end. It's divided into night sides and day sides. And the way it's se- sequenced is really, this really kind of makes it make sense. And I think the night side is really about the mystery and darkness of New York and also about the fun. Whereas the day side is much more about the cold, harsh, harshness of reality. It's almost like there's a hangover on the day side from the kind of fun that was had the night before. So let's start with the first track. I want to play a little clip of this, Another World, which really sets the scene for this album in a great way. Yes, you can hear all the Latin jazz elements, but it's just got a really strong melody. It's really catchy. It's a really good opener that kind of sets it. Yeah, it's one of my favorites on the album for sure. Now, the next song I don't have a clip from, but it's I almost wish I did because it's so moody, but it's almost not even a complete song. You know, it's it's very silly song lyrically, but it kind of goes to some interesting places. Um, you know, there's it's it's basically Joe Jackson is hunting around New York for some Chinese food is, <laughs> is the kind of concept of the song. And the lyrics are like a hungry man can hold out for a long time for some good for some soul food or good food, soul food, whole food. And it's like, you know, he's hungry. He's going around and he sees some stuff. He sees a cop who's talking to a guy with a knife in his back. And the cop just says, kind of move along. And then he sees another guy who who asked him directions and he, and this is the most cringe part of the song where he, he sings like, he did it look much like a China man. <laughs> I'm like, uh, yeah, that's not exactly politically correct. But I think one of the reasons he did that was it kind of makes the song kind of give that old fashioned noirish feel, yeah. you know, Chinaman is such a forties, thirties thing to say, but it doesn't age terribly well. I mean, this song is really slight. It, you know, if you played this song on its own, it doesn't really hold up well, but it, when you play it after another world and it goes into this kind of, you know, there's some kind of cymbal crashes and almost like a gong and this eerie organ, they, it really kind of works as part of the album. Now, the next song is another one that is, I, I don't know, it's, it's good and bad, but the music is awesome on this song. It's called TVH and it's almost like a talking heads kind of style song where he's talking a lot, but the lyrics are so preachy. Um, you know, he's he, it, it, the song opens with the lyric, here we stand, remote control buttons in our sweaty little hands. Oh, Americans watch too much TV. You yeah. know, it's, it's so on the nose, but musically, it's fucking pretty great. There's so much going on in the song. And I'm just going to play a, a short 20 second segment that I really love of this song that almost like emulates like the old kind of news electronic music they'd play in a news broadcast. So play this clip.
burning down the house. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, it's very talking heads, but I love the, um, uh, of course, and you said those lyrics, there's no need for movies, we got HBO. So he's like, this song kind of shows the what's happening indoors. So you have like him going around New York, seeing all these faces, going to Chinatown, walking, but then he kind of cuts to what are the irregular Americans doing? They're watching TV at night. So it really kind of fits in with the concept, but some of those lyrics like are very preachy, but I do like the, the arrangement. I love that kind of pulsating keyboard he does. And there's some cool percussion after that, but of course I can't play the whole damn song. So, you know, go listen to it. Um, now target is one of my favorites too. Um, I'm not, I, I was going to play a clip of this, but I don't want us to go for five hours. So I'm going to skip that, but I would reckon because the other, another song, I think kind of, shows the strengths of this song this song is more of a simple kind of salsa kind of workout where there's some really great organ really great keyboards um lyrically it's kind of about him being scared of what's out there in new york it's uh you know he, he says no one's fussy i'm a target and it was actually originally inspired by john lennon's murder in new york um and it's lyrically it's there's not much going on but musically it's really great you know it's some of the best playing on the record um but there's another song on side two that i think we can show you know that that has some of that so i'll i'll just leave it to that um you know obviously we already played a clip of stepping out i think stepping out is his best song of all time uh i think partially it's because of the uh just how catchy it is but how uniquely catchy it is yeah like it really doesn't sound like anything else even though there are influences in jazz and think i think it's kind of its own thing the pulsating bass line bass line is great um and i love the lyrics you know the mist across the window hides the light i mean it's so visual and evocative um i love the line where he where he he sings, we dress in pink and blue, just like a child. And in a yellow taxi, turn to me and smile. I mean, it's like so visual, so simple and evocative. And it's all of the good side of New York, um, you know, and it's kind of going out and having fun. And it's just, it really is uh, probably his masterwork um, of, of all. Although you could add, you know, mention Look Sharp and Is She Really Going Out and Out With Him as uh, other iconic songs and, uh, you know, Jeff's favorite, I'm the man, great song. You know, he has a lot of good songs, but I just think this one, I'll get to it in the eval, but this one really stands out for me. And it doesn't get old for me either. I love it every time I hear it on this record. I never skip it. Um, so side two day, again, the side two is much more dark and serious. It's much sadder um, and kind of more about the consequences of the nightlife in a way. Uh, and, uh, you know, it starts out with, uh, breaking us in two, which I don't have a clip of, but is, you know, kind of similar to other ballads he did with the exception that there is some Latin percussion on this one. So he does kind of maintain it for this song. Um, even though it's a ballad and could probably not, it could probably survive without it. It's really catchy. You probably heard it. And if you haven't, you know, obviously I recommend listening to this album in its entirety, but you could certainly find the video for this. This was another one with the video. Yeah. Um, it's along the same lines of uh, different for girls a little bit. Is she really going out with them? One to one, which is a great ballad he did on beat crazy, probably the best song on beat crazy, but there's more of a political song. Um, and then be my number two, which is a song that's a really good ballad from body and soul. That was also a single, but not as big of a hit. So I, you know, this is a good one. Uh, it's not 
particularly unique other than some of the arrangement here with that maintains some of the Latin sound, even though it's not musically as much so as the song I'm going to talk about next. Well, be, okay. be my number two. Wasn't that his ode to his uh, love of bidets? Isn't that, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, poo joke. So let's drink again. Um, <laughs> all right. So now we have this song that, oh man, this song is so awesome. Even though lyrically, it's almost ironic when we just talked about the uh, smoking issue because this is Joe's screed on uh, oh, science telling you everything gives you cancer, which is actually kind of true in a way. Um, but anyway, it's really hard to choose a clip. This is like six minutes of fucking badass fucking salsa music. Um, it's really amazing instrumental. There's an instrumental break, but I want to uh, play. So in anyway, this is the cold, hard light of day. You've had your party at night and now you're getting cancer from all the bad shit you did last night. Um, so anyway. I want to play some of the lyrics, so I'm going to do that, but you can hear some of how awesome the music is. And I recommend listening to the whole thing because there's an incredible breakdown, uh, percussion breakdown, incredible melodic piano work by Joe Jackson on this song. But let's play the bit I, I took, about the minute or so I took from it. No caffeine, no protein. Yeah. It makes me laugh. That's uh, it's funny. Yeah, no nicotine, uh, yeah. you know, gives you cancer. So anyway, uh, but you can hear the end of that, the really kind of cool little melodic jam. And it get, it just builds. It keeps building and it gets really, it hits a crescendo. But I wanted to, I had to include the nicotine lyric. So is he going to do like to... commercials like Yul Brenner did when he was dying of lung cancer? You know, at the end, like, oh, hey, I was wrong about that. You know, maybe you should listen to me for biology. Maybe. I mean, again, he might get lung cancer. Not everyone does, but you know, he's just increasing his risk. He's only increasing his risk by 200%. And then of course there's always cop D or emphysema. Yeah. Yeah, It's uh, at any rate. Um, So next up, you know, real men. So this song again was the first single. uh, And it's interesting. He was Joe Jackson is bisexual, but he married this woman. They talks about it a little bit in cure for gravity. her first name was Ruth. I forget her last name, but she was like a, a woman from Sierra Leone who'd migrated and they both shared a love of reggae and they would go to reggae shows together. And they were kind of going out during this time. And a few years later, they got married and he said it was a terrible marriage. Uh, it lasted two years. And, you know, but part of it is he kind of was into dudes, you know, mm. so he realized he was into dudes, you know, he kind of came out and, but this is interesting because at the time I wondered about him because of the lyrics of this song. Um, and it was really weird. It had a video and it was played all over MTV. But if you if you hear the lyrics here, you're, you're kind of going to be blown away. Uh, obviously, some of the lyrics 
I, I don't think they're intended to be offensive, but obviously they are, uh, you know, a little provocative these days. Um, so let's play the clip from Real Men. See the nice boys dancing in pairs, golden earring, golden tan, blow waving the hair, short arrow straight, straight as a line. All the gays are macho, can't you see the leather shine? You don't want to sound Billy Squire nods in approval at this song. <laughs> I knew you were going to throw in a Billy Squire joke. I didn't time anything, so I'm like, Jeff's going to say something. But anyway, yeah, and, and it, you could hear the Latin stuff is all gone from this song completely, and it's almost like that chorus, you know, with that banging piano. It just reminds me of Bruce Springsteen or something. And then, you know, maybe there's a little Billy Joel here too as well, but but it's, you know, it's, it's a catchy, memorable song and, you know, interesting lyrics, uh, that definitely were controversial at the time and probably controversial now. Um, but at why, any rate, why do you think they're controversial? Like, like just, well, you know, you typically don't hear the F word thrown around these days, you know, well, it's almost yeah, like, but, but yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, by somebody who's, who's gay, you know? I, yeah. Yeah. I think, I think it's meant that way. And I don't think it's meant as a slur. It's he's talking about it himself. Yeah. You know, and, and it's true, but I think, you know, how things are now. Yeah, I, I guess. But I, I mean, yeah. context is everything. I mean, you know, I, I, I agree has... with you, but not everyone agrees with that. So okay. that's what I'm saying. But anyway, I don't think um, it's offensive at all, especially with him saying these things, because he's talking about his own struggles here and, and all that. But right. But yeah. it's still weird to hear that on MTV. And it's also weird that he released this as the first single. When that is, that is strange. There's that no is really weird. That. But obviously, um, he felt strongly about the song and it, I think it holds up for sure. Um, um, now the, rock, the last... he, he also uh, says his favorite video is rock me tonight, by the way. <laughs> totally. He's like, I didn't like Billy Squire before that. And uh, suddenly I became a huge fan. Yeah, exactly. But anyway, um, so the last song is like a seven minute long kind of torch song power ballad called a slow song and a lot of people diss this song i think it's really good um even though there's some you know it's basically his you know joe jackson talks about it at the time he did not like like hard rock and it's so funny because i'm like oh is he talking about like dio no he's like sticks and foreigner and i'm like wow you really <laughs> don't like hard rock if you think that's uh, hard rock uh but he just didn't like the arena you know he was just always more of a classicist he likes kind of jazz and classical the softer side of things and with rock he wants to be more sophisticated right mm. more jazz oriented like steely dan so he kind of has this ironically though he did like tears are falling so um <laughs> so at any rate this song he um you know, he's kind of singing about how he wants a slow song and it's kind of this ballad that builds up at the end. And there's some cringy moments where he's like, I'm brutalized by bass. 
and terrorized by treble. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like that's pretty, pretty cringe. But I really like the buildup at the end. So let's just play the climax here of a slow song because I really think this is pretty great. Yeah, pretty awesome, I think. I love the, the the different vocals trading back and forth and stuff. And that sort of closes out the album. And, uh, you know, as far as my evaluation, you know, I've gone back and forth on this as far as short, long, and which album I like better. You know, I just love the album as a whole. And I think it's more of an original creation than Look Sharp, which is so part of that Angry Young Man thing. You know, we talked about a couple of songs that sound so like Elvis Costello. Although I love Elvis Costello and he sounds like Graham Parker, you know? So, but song for song, I think Look Sharp is the better of the two. Because if you take any of those songs individually, they stand up on their own. Whereas like only a few of the songs on on Night and Day stand up. Now, maybe they hit higher heights, like, uh, you know, Stepping Out, Breaking Up, Breaking Us Two, Another World. Those songs uh, really stand out. Real Men, those songs really stand on their own. But some of the other songs like Target and Chinatown and TBH, they work better in the fabric of the album and they don't stand out as much. Whereas like anything from Look Sharp stands out. I mean, every song I like even pretty. He doesn't like pretty girls. I love pretty girls. I think it's catchy as hell, you know, and I think every song is memorable. So I think song for song. It's I think it's better of the two, but um I think it's also a little more derivative because of the, you know, the, the angry young man pub rock thing and the reggae thing, uh, you know, and night and day is kind of derivative, but it's, it's intentionally. So it's like, he's trying to bring in the salsa music. Maybe there's some cultural appropriation, even though I think that term is bullshit because I think, look, he's, he's giving jobs to these musicians and he's, you know, he's actually bringing attention to this music and he's incorporating it into his own sound. I mean, these are very, uh, listen to another totally. one. It's very, yeah, I never bought that. I, I think cultural appropriation is just a natural occurrence that happens when different people get exposed to things they like. Well, there's exploitation and, versus appreciation. I mean, this is yeah. appreciation. This is it's like, appreciation like, yeah. and, and synthesis, right? Yeah, he's 100%. like actually taking, like another world melodically is a Joe Jackson song with salsa instrumentation, you know? Yeah. So what? He's yeah. bringing attention and he's giving these percussionists a, a, a venue to play and they're contributing and they're combining together to create something new. So I also really feel like it does capture some kind of vibe and atmosphere, both on the night side and the day side. And that's why I realized, uh, you know, I just don't think the CD of this is the same because it kind of really is. There is something about that night side and the day side. Obviously, you can listen to it on a CD and appreciate it. And maybe it has a different thing you know, on a CD or, you know, one continuous streaming, but I really like that it was divided and you turn it over and it's a whole different scene on the day side. Now, at the end of the day, I just don't go long on him overall. And it pains me to go short because I really want this album to be appreciated more. I think, you know, I think that, and and, and it's really borderline, maybe neutral would be a better thing to say. And I'll say why. 
it's basically because, you know, again, it's very niche with the salsa thing. It's, um, you know, it's very, it's cohesive, but uh, it's not, you know, the songs don't all stand out on their own. And I think with Look Sharp, it's maybe less cohesive and a little more derivative. So I really think at the end of the day, what's going to be long for, I guess what I'm saying is, I don't see what you talked about. Like you were long because you're like, well, these are good, you know, and you should be long. I agree that they're good, but I don't see that lost Joe Jackson thing where suddenly people have this revelation that he's been ignored, even though I think they should have that. And I think people should know more about these albums. I just don't think they will unless he just does something else radical. Like quit smoking. Well, I think he needs to make night and day three colon operation smoke grind. (laughs) The concept (laughs) album about smoking. He needs to take his screen and put it in a concept album. The there you Joe, go. If you're out there. It's time for Operation Smoke Crime, my friend. Let's get let's let's yeah, uh Jeff Tate is available to help. Smoke, out. Smokers, smokers unite. Smokers unite. Let's go. But I just don't see it. I don't see that kind of thing where people are gonna reach back in here. I think I think the two things that are really gonna stand out are probably is she really going out with him and especially stepping out. I think stepping out will always be recognized and and new generations will discover it. But I want to be long. I want people to discover these albums and realize how solid and great they are and how good the songs are and what, it, and even maybe his wider catalog, because even though it's less consistent than these albums, there's so much interesting he's tried to do, especially some of the classical stuff is really cool. So I want to be long, but I'm borderline shorting just because uh, I just don't see it happening. You know, one of the even reasons I why to. Yeah, no, I get that. And and one of the reasons why I went slightly long is because I had that experience of coming back to it so many years later. Oh, yeah. And it's like, well, I'm rediscovering this or or not even, I guess, rediscovering technically. I certainly heard stepping out and stuff like that. But like really discovering it for the first time, I'm like, this is great. You know, so yeah. I'm hoping other people um, with discerning taste, such as myself, will, uh, you know, discover this in the, in the future. So... All right. Well, look, I, I certainly get your points, but more importantly, what what do the uh, uh, large language models of AI think about this uh, album uh, battle? So, you know, we have our opinions, but uh, clearly um, our uh, overlords, AI overlords like chat GPT must have their opinion. And, and I know in the future, this is going to seem like a very quaint thing that we've incorporated all this uh, chat GPT crap, but uh, it amuses us for now in the future. Um, you know, the, the AIs will have edited us out and replaced us with. Um, well, maybe us, including chat GPT's opinion, will give us a little, you know, cred, credit with our uh, AI overlords. Maybe, you know, maybe they'll punish us less. When one, zero, zero, one, one, zero, zero, one. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll be safe with, with getting. That's our and, grace uh, under pressure episode. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, so what is. Uh, Rush jokes, nerds. All right. What does chat GPT think of this? So I'll read this. It says, uh, Jackson's 1979 album, Look Sharp, is often considered one of his best works. It features hits like, is she really going out with him in Sunday papers? Not really a hit, but and showcases his unique blend of punk, new wave, and pop influences. That being said, his album, Night and Day, is often considered his most iconic and influential work. 
Released in 1982, it was a departure from its earlier new wave and punk-influenced sound, instead embracing jazz, Latin, and world music influences. The album contains some of his most well-known songs, including Stepping Out and Breaking Us In Two. So there you go. I, I think ChatGPT thinks uh, you're right here, uh, you know, I guess in the sense that uh, Night and Day is the one to focus on. Uh, maybe it's even a little bit longer than you. So there you go. That is uh, episode 37, Joe Jackson. Uh, Joe, uh, I encourage you to stop smoking now. It's not too late. Um, maybe you'll stave off some of the worst effects, uh, but probably not at this point. So enjoy your time in Berlin. Wow, if you're listening, there you go. Uh, enjoy those cigarettes and stay in a corner and smoke your cigarettes and drink your beer and it'll be all right. So that's episode 37. Uh, this is Jeff. That's Slip. See you all next time.